we go. There's my secretary. Uh, we're in James chapter four. We left off right around verse five. I'm going to pick it up right at the beginning of the chapter, just so you get the flavor of where we are. James is the half-brother of Jesus, writing this book to um, Christians, Jewish Christians, but us as well, um, who are dealing with persecution. And it, it, it goes right along with the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, almost like a commentary on Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So it, this book is a series of tests by which Christians can read these tests and ask themselves, how am I doing in this area? And um, improve where necessary kind of thing. Um, the main points from last week, he talked about consistency. Christians need to be consistent and have there's two kinds of wisdom, worldly wisdom we talked about last week and godly wisdom. And th there's a big difference, of course. Um, we talked about um, being a friend of the world and becoming an enemy of God, worldliness and all of that selfishness. And some of that will continue tonight. Um, so tonight we're going to talk about humility a little more. We're going to talk about the devil, Satan, and judging other Christians. Um, what we can and can't do, and then overconfidence, and even a little bit, uh, if we get to it in chapter five, about riches and greed and all of that. So I know that you're awake. Say amen. amen. Pretty good. Okay, those of you on Zoom, wave or say amen. I see you, Mary Nickel. All right, um, let's pick it up in chapter four. Let's read starting in verse one. What causes fights and quarrels among you? And he's talking about Christians there, you. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill or murder. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. Talking about prayer there. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your lusts or pleasures. So we talked about that last week. You adulterous people, he says, this is Old Testament type prophet language. In the Old Testament, Israel, the country was the wife of, the spouse of God. In the New Testament, we, the church, Christians, are the bride of Christ. So he calls them adulteresses. Now remember, an adulteress is someone who is having an affair with or dealing with a man who is not her husband. So these people are turning their back on God, so he calls them adulterous. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity uh, with, against God or enmity with God, becoming an enemy of God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world, verse 4 says at the end of it, becomes an enemy of God. We talked about this at length last week, so I just wanted to bring you up to speed. All right, let's jump in at verse 5. But that's the context there about being a friend of the world versus uh, a friend of God. You can't be both. You can't straddle the fence, if you will. So let's dive in in verse five. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously, jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? Question mark. Okay, this is all the commentaries talked about this. It's a tough verse to um, the construction of the Greek is a tough verse to uh, translate. So um, a, a good translation, I think, is um, that God jealously longs for the spirit that he made to dwell in us. 
The question is, does he mean each person has a spirit? That's true. Um, that he jealously longs for that spirit to be in fellowship with him in that relationship with him, or does he mean the Holy Spirit? Most of the commentators thought he means um, your spirit, but there were it, there was some uh, disagreement there. So, by the way, do you think the scripture says there is no one particular scripture that says this, but all through the Old Testament, there's this idea that God is a jealous God. That might surprise you if you've never read that before. We look at jealousy as being a very negative trait. Somebody has a better car than me, so I'm jealous of them. Or um, they have a prettier wife than mine, which would be impossible, of course. My, my wife happens to be watching. Um, but anyway, if it were possible, then I would want what they have. That's not the jealousy. When we talk about God being jealous, um, it's not that he's envious in any way. It's he's in a good way, possessive of us because we're his and for our own good, he wants that spirit that he gave us to be turned back to him, uh, if you will. It's all through the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, Exodus, uh, Zechariah, this idea of a jealous God. So back to that, that text, do you think the scripture says without reason? In other words, this ties right in with what he was just saying. He, that's God, jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. Remember that man is, in a sense, not God, but we are three, body, soul, spirit. We're a trinity. We're not God. Don't get me wrong. But as God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are body, soul, spirit. Born again means the spirit has come alive because of Jesus Christ. His spirit has drawn us and made us alive uh, by faith. So he jealously longs for that spirit when we're straying away. Where was the straying away? Verses one through four. Fights and quarrels. Um, they're even murdering, coveting in verse uh, two. Um, they're not asking God. Notice you do not have because you do not ask. They're not even praying. When you do ask, you don't receive because their motives are bad. So he wants that relationship with that spirit that he caused to dwell in us. Um, the other way to translate it is that the spirit wants that relationship and is jealous. That's the he. Verse, um, let's see, verse six. I'm just looking at my notes here. Yeah. Um, so he's accused them of spiritual adultery, calling them adulteresses, and he wants them back. Verse six, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. So the idea here is that he gives us more grace, abundant grace. In other words, there's a sense in which you get one-time grace when you come from the outside world, an unbeliever, a pagan, unsaved, and you come to Christ, okay? He gives you grace, meaning what? Grace is undeserved favor. It's something that you can't earn. God doesn't owe you. You don't deserve it. So it's a gift. He gives you grace and gives you salvation. You're born again. You're forgiven of your sins. And then begins the process of sanctification, where you become more and more like uh, Jesus Christ. But there's greater grace that comes when somebody has come to faith in Christ and then has backslid to the point that's a Christian term we use so often. It means a person is a Christian, but starting to fall back into their old ways. 
When that happens, there's even greater grace waiting for that person when they will do what follows. And you're going to see the word humility, humble a lot. Um, there's even greater grace then. His greater grace, by the way, the scripture that's there is Proverbs 334. Um, he opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's uh, been mentioned earlier, and it's also in the book of John as well. Uh, it is categorically something you see throughout the scriptures. Um, so he gives us more grace. Um, but the first condition of that grace, when you're coming back, having been an adulteress or adulterer, spiritually been away from God, and you're coming back, there's more grace. He's saying, come boldly. There's more grace for you. But condition number one is that humility at the end of the verse. Do you see it? Um, God opposes, resists, some translations have, the proud. Pride is uh, just a huge sin. Pride lists the list, uh, heads the list of the seven deadly sins. Pride is what caused, caused Satan to fall. He was an angel, uh, an exalted angel. Um, and he, his pride got the better of him. Uh, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 tell us those two places, how Satan became Satan. That's where he says, I will ascend. I will be like the most high. I will. There's five. I wills. I, 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 it's all about me. He's usurping God. He wants to take the place of God. We'll mention it later, but let me just throw this shocker at you. When you and I sin, we're saying the same thing. Because God has given us his law and said that he's God, he's the lawgiver, he's the judge. When we say, I know that's a sin, but I'm just going to do it. We're saying the same thing. I'm going to sit in God's chair. I'm going to decide what's right and wrong for me. Back to verse six. There's more grace for that person, but humility is the, that's why that's there. He opposes the proud, but he shows favor, gives grace to the humble. I've told you this little thing before. Um, I always picture someone coming to Christ, um, that Christ is in the cave over there, okay? And the doorway in, when I'm first coming to Jesus for salvation, the doorway in is three or four feet high. You say, why would that be? Because I think if it was a full six or seven or eight foot door, we would waltz in and say, here I am. You need me, don't you, God? With full of pride, full of self-aggrandizement. If that doorway, if you picture being low, you might look at the door and go, I can't get in there. I'd have to get on my hands and knees and look all humble and small. Yeah, exactly. That's the way we come to Jesus, right? Once we get through the door with that humble attitude, he doesn't stick his foot on our neck. He says, get, get up, my child and embraces us. But that humble attitude has to exist for the rest of our relationship with Jesus. It's He's our friend, but much more than that, he is our Lord. Lord means master. It means boss, right? The analogies that God gives for that relationship include a shepherd and sheep. The sheep don't come to the shepherd and go, well, we voted and you're out. We're going to kind of run things our own way. That's the best I could do. Sorry. Also, there's the analogy. God calls himself our what? Father. 
a little three-year-old doesn't say, I'm not doing that. You know, I'm, I'm not going to obey you unless he wants, you know, punishment. In the same way, he's our Lord. He's our master. He's the judge. So we come to him humbly when we've sinned. Some people, when they've sinned, stay away from God. It's the worst thing you can do. Grace, free gift, undeserved, and pride are eternal, listen, enemies. They're incompatible just as loving the world and loving God. You can't do both. Absolutely incompatible. But we're prone to stray and wander when we do. There's greater grace to woo us back. He's ready to pour it out when we're humble. Um, we already talked about that. Let's keep rolling. Verse uh, 7. Submit yourselves then, or therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. I wanted to read those two verses together. So because of verse 6, since God opposes, is against the proud, but embraces or gives grace to the humble, therefore, logically, verse 7, therefore, submit yourselves. Submit, the word in Greek means to stand under. It's a military term in terms of authority, to stand under. We are, especially Americans, I believe, very, very independent, maybe too much so. We like to feel like, you ever heard these sayings? Self-made man, right? Which is such an oxymoron. God gave the talents and the gifts. There's no such thing as a self and the opportunity and the health. There's no such thing as a self-made man. Submit yourselves then to God. Remember then that God is our master. That's what it means to have him be your Lord. Some people like the savior. You ever heard Jesus is my savior and Lord. They like the savior part better. I do too. He saved me. He died in my place. He, his shed blood is why I'm forgiven from my sin. I like all that. But if you don't include the lordship that he's also now calling the shots of my life. When he says A and I want B, I got to do A, right? He says, don't do C. And I'm thinking about doing C. I got to read his word and say, I can't do it. Submit yourselves then to God. Okay, here it comes. Resist the devil. And surprisingly, may I interject, he will flee from you. Now, who is the devil? A fallen angel, highly exalted angel. There are those that think he was a, a cherub, you know, one of the exalted super angels. Um, he um, fell because he rebelled against God, wanted to be God himself, took with him a bunch of other angels who became fallen angels, same thing as demons. Okay. Um, Satan is nowhere near as powerful as God. It's not even a contest. That's the first thing. If you've watched Star Wars, it may be entertaining. It's horrible theology. In Star Wars, there's the force, the good side, the bad side, and they're pretty equal. If you think of that in terms of the Bible, you're going to get led astray, okay? Satan is no match for God none whatsoever. You see this in Jesus's life when people are demon possessed and Jesus basically says, get lost and the demons leave, right? They even call him the son of God. Please don't torment us. Let us go into those pigs. Remember all those stories? 
there's no match. Satan in, in, uh, indwells a man uh, called the Antichrist, the beast, okay, in the future, I believe. There's those that don't believe it. But um, Revelation 13 is where you'd find this, also 2 Thessalonians. Um, this man is indwelt by Satan with great power, great charisma. He has military power. He's going to be a one world leader. But even he and his false prophet and the devil himself, when Jesus shows up in Revelation 19, you, how many have heard of the Battle of Armageddon? Boy, is that a seven-year war, a 20-year war? No, it's about that fast. Jesus just takes control. They seize, he seizes the dragon, which is the devil, the beast, and the false prophet, and they're bound for a thousand years. So don't think the devil, boy, he's almost as powerful as God. There's no comparison. However, that's the good news. Greater is he that is in you, that's the Holy Spirit, that's God, than he that is in the world, that's Satan. However, if you go up against Satan on your own, you're going to lose every single time. It's a spiritual being, right? He knows your weaknesses and knows where to tempt you and what have you. However, this verse says to do what? Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. I believe that the devil likes easy targets. Okay. You as a Christian are not an easy target, but you do have a bullseye on your back painted there by the devil because you're his real enemy. The devil does not hang out with prostitutes, drug addicts in bars and um, evil places. They're already on his team. He might hang out there kind of fun for him. Maybe the devil comes to disrupt churches, Bible studies, um, Christians lives. But this verse says to resist the devil. When Jesus is tempted in Matthew chapter four, do you remember? By the devil in the wilderness, the devil happens to show up at the weakest point. Jesus is fasting for 40 days. You think you're hungry if you haven't eaten dinner tonight. He comes to Jesus. What does Jesus do every time Satan tempts him? He quotes scripture. And the weird thing is, after a few of those, Satan splits. But it's interesting. It says he left Jesus, he left Jesus for a more opportune time. I believe that was the Garden of Gethsemane, where Satan came back with the guns blazing. It's going to be bloody. You sure you want to do this? Jesus prays as a man, if it's your will, take this cup from me. But not my will, but thy will be done. Do you remember? The devil is a defeated foe. He has been convicted on the cross. He's awaiting judgment, but he's unbelievably powerful. I want you to notice what verse seven doesn't say uh, with regard to the devil. Submit yourselves to God. That's the first thing, okay? And be under God's hand. Resist the devil. You know what it doesn't say? Cast out the devil yourself. Perfect place to say it, right? It just says, resist him. He's pulling you this way. You go that way. He's telling you to do something that you know is wrong. Don't do it. The best way to do it is not to entertain the thought. 
I want to, I want you to imagine, I bet you everybody here has one of these, right? A cell phone. If you're like me, when your phone rings, you can look at it and see, oh, it's Harold calling. I'm too busy to talk to Harold. I'm not going to take the call. Or, oh, it's my brother calling. Uh, I want to talk to him. Oh, it's Sherry calling my wife. I want to talk to her. And you can take the call. But you have the, you have the ability to not take the call. Imagine that Satan, when he's tempting you, when he is zapping you, when he is oppressing you, when he is making you feel guilty over stuff you know Jesus forgave you for, when he's tempting you to do something you know you shouldn't, when he's building up that anger against that person or not having that forgiving attitude, when he's tempting you to be greedy, whatever it is, imagine that he's calling you on your phone. And it says Satan, probably area code 666, right? Anyway. Satan, oh, Satan's calling. Listen, don't take the call. That's resisting him. Beyond that, pray. God, I'm really under oppression and I'm being tested right now and tempted. Please be with me. Give me your strength to defeat this temptation and resist the devil. Quoting scripture. If you can't memorize it, have it nearby. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I have read numerous accounts of people that did um, uh, exorcisms with people, and the demons inside of people hate when you quote scripture, hate to hear the name Jesus Christ. I praise you, God, heaven, master of heaven and earth, creator, sustainer, my Lord, my Savior, I love you. Satan's already getting his jacket on going, I'm going to go find someone else. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. It doesn't say cast him out yourself. I've said this before. I might step on your toes. If I do, I apologize. I do hear people on TV uh, and in, in charismatic churches say, we rebuke you, Satan. We bind you, Satan. You ever heard that one? Bind, meaning like we're putting you in handcuffs, Satan, so you can't do anything. How long does the binding last? An hour? Because still stuff going on, right? Um, I don't believe we have the authority to ourselves bind Satan. What about Michael the archangel? Okay, keep your finger here and turn a few books to the right and go to Jude, right before Revelation. Go to the book of Jude with me, just really quick. It's only one chapter, right before Revelation, after the first, second, and third John Book of Jude, I think we want verse 9, but that's from memory. Okay. Uh, yes. He tells a weird story in the book of Jude about when Moses died. But even the archangel Michael. Okay, pause. Are you spiritually stronger than the archangel Michael or weaker? Hello, you're weaker. So am I. Let's see what happens when Michael has a dispute with Satan himself. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, paused. You go, wait, what's that? Moses died, but God had plans for him. God knew he's got to show up centuries later on the Mount of Transfiguration. Okay? So... Uh, and I also believe Revelation 11, the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. Some people don't. That's okay. You read their MO, their little 
resume in that chapter, it sure sounds, one of them sure sounds like Moses, the other one sounds like Elijah. Why would it be those two? Because there was a dispute about the body of Moses. Satan says, he's dead now, he's mine because of this fall of man. And God said, no, not you can't touch this one. At the end of Moses's life, you read that he died. And do you remember this? Who buried Moses, class? God himself. That's pretty odd, meaning I got plans for this body. Also, God probably didn't want Moses's body to be a shrine. They'd probably sell postcards and snow cones there and pieces of his actual robe for $14.95. If you order now, I'll throw in my slippers. Okay. But the point is, Moses is dead. God's going to use him. By the way, Elijah, a picture of those that are alive when Christ returns, just goes to heaven. Remember, he doesn't die. Same with Enoch, but that's another story. When he was disputing with the body of uh, Moses, with the devil, the archangel Michael did not dare bring a slanderous accusation against him. You know what he said? The Lord rebuke you. Good enough for me. When, I'm being, when I feel like Satan's really on me, making me feel negative, making me feel very down, depressed, Lord, the Lord rebuke you. Not me. I bind you, Satan. Who am I? Okay. I don't want to do battle with Satan. If Michael didn't want to do battle with Satan, I don't want to do battle with Satan. But we can resist the devil. Go back to James with me, if you will. And he'll flee from you. Uh, go ahead, John. He's saying, he's saying that the argument might have been because Moses had committed murder, making him a sinner. Is that where you're going? He's, and, and Satan's saying he's mine, and God's saying, even though he committed murder, he's saved. He's mine. Um, Moses li lived kind of a wayward life for a while, and eventually God used him and brought him back. I expect to see Moses in heaven, no question. Uh, Revelation 11, he's on the sermon, uh, he's on the Mount of Transfiguration, remember? Why? Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. That's how the Jews refer to the Old Testament and Judaism, the law and the prophets. There they are, the two of them. So Peter, James, and John can see them, Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter, you remember the story, Matthew 17, puts his foot in his mouth and says, oh, my paraphrase, I get it. You're on an equal footing with Moses and Elijah. That's impressive, Jesus. Let's build three tabernacles, places of worship. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Do you remember what happens? A big cloud of smoke comes. God says, wrong. No, he didn't say that, but that's what he basically said, right? God says, this singular is my one beloved son. Listen to him. Smoke disappears. No Moses, no Elijah, because he fulfills the law and fulfills the prophets. Only Jesus. If you're going to make a tabernacle, make it for him. Worship him. Okay, we digress. Resisting the devil. Uh, you've heard about demon possession, I'm sure. A demon takes over a body and indwells a body. Can that happen to a Christian? No, impossible. For a number, 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 reason number one, nowhere in the New Testament ever do you see that. 
You see demon-possessed people coming. They're not Christians. Reason number two, a Christian by definition, and according to the book of Romans, has the Holy Spirit living inside of us. That's God himself. Picture your body as a house, okay? The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Do you think the Holy Spirit wants a roommate, let alone Satan? Satan comes knocking and the Holy Spirit opens the door and says, hey, I live here. Get lost. Impossibility. Can Satan tempt, oppress, um, try to make us mess up? Absolutely. Can he possess a believer? I don't believe it's possible. Most Christian scholars do not believe it either. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Don't take the call. You know what we do? We take the call. Uh, this is Satan. I'm just going to take it for a minute. What do you uh, do? What? Oh, I don't know. Don't take the call. I love you, Lord. I praise you, Lord Jesus. Satan's already getting his coat on. Verse eight. This is the other side of the coin. Isn't that just enough to resist the devil? Heck no. Come near to God. Draw near to God, and he will come near to you. It's an astounding thing for a Jew to read that. I'll tell you why in a second. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. What's going on here? Do you remember Moses meets, speaking of Moses, meets God, speaks to him in the burning bush? Do you remember? Moses says, what is that? He walks over to come closer. And do you remember what God says? Stop. Don't come any closer. There's been no payment for sin right? The law hasn't been given. You, Moses, no offense. I'm going to use you in a great way, but you're a sinner. Stop. Don't come any closer. Take your shoes off. Remember all that? Since the cross, God never says, nope, no closer to those that are his own. He says, draw near. Come to me. The closer, we're going to say in a second, what do you mean by drawing near? How do I do this? Because if I said, draw near to Jeff in the black and white shirt, you would know what to do. Everyone draw near, you'd all crowd around him, right? It means get closer physically. Well, you can't get closer physically to God. You don't have to go to Jerusalem or the Vatican or wherever you think God is. is. He's omnipresent. So what does it mean to draw near to him? And what do you have to do? The first requirement we already read was that whole humility thing. You don't draw near to him going, you need me. I'm an awesome believer. You draw near in humility, first of all. But the second thing you do is wash your hands. You say, you mean soap and water? No. Hands in the Bible in, uh, are emblematic of, symbolic of what we do. He's saying, repent. The repentance is coming a verse or two later, but stay with me for now. Are you still awake? Say amen. Amen. Oh, amen. Okay. Those of you online, I see some of you are sleeping. That's all right. This is the Psalmonex Bible study. Verse eight, come near to God, draw near to him. He'll draw near to you. What an amazing thing. He made the first move in the relationship. By the way, have you ever felt like Boy, God just feels distant lately to me. When that's the case, who moved? You think God moved away from you, or did you drift away from God? There's a, a guy, it was a sermon I heard, I bet you, 30 years ago. When we were kids, this guy says, 
his brother and he, and I have a brother, so I could relate. We would go to the beach often, okay? And my parents would set up a blanket and uh, some food, and you guys go play at the in the water. So we run down to the water, we get in the ocean, we're riding the waves, we're floating around. You ever have this happen? You're in there an hour, and you just enjoying the ocean and the waves and each other, and you look and you go, mom and dad should be right. Oh, no. They're not there. What happened? Did your mom and dad move? Let's desert the kids. No. You drifted slowly away, right? And you look and you look, they're way over there. You didn't realize the tide was taking you very gradually. Satan's very patient. Don't let yourself drift. Part of the way we draw near to God is by reading his word. Another way we draw near to God is by prayer. If your prayers are short and before bed, probably not a good idea. You know what the Bible says? For the best time to pray is always. What do you mean? Pray without ceasing. Paul says it more than once. Throughout the day, praying, talking to God, leave the line open, right? The call, it's, always, it's always on. Please help me, Lord, with this, you know. What is your will for this? Okay, draw near to God. Attend church. What do you mean? Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Hebrews 10, 25, I think it is, which is the habit of some. Don't forsake it. Attend in a body. Well, no, it's just me and God and we're good. No, it's not the picture. You, you have brothers and sisters. It's not about you getting stuff from church. It might be you contributing something to church. Attend church, pray, read the scriptures, fellowship with other believers. You want to know another way to draw near to God? Moment by moment, obedience. As you do, you're moving, whether you know it or not, moving closer. Keeping your eye on God, thinking about God, heavenly thoughts, all have to do with coming near to God. When we do that, it says he won't stand there like this, like a proud father. In fact, in the story of the prodigal son, do you remember? There's a son that has gone off the deep end. Give me my inheritance, dad. I'm out of here. Total sin, remember? And then he returns. The son does. And he's still a ways off. And the father on the porch sees him coming. And does he fold his arms and go, boy, are you going to get it? Do you remember the story? He, the father runs to his son. Draw near to God. The son is doing that. The father is running to him. That's the boldly coming to the throne because he loves us. We're his kids, right? Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Wash your hands. This is and purify your hearts. That's right out of the Old Testament. Do you know who that was for? The priests. Those who are going to serve God had to first wash their hands. I don't mean get the dirt off your hands. It was symbolic of repent. Stop doing those things you know is are against God's will. Stop having that attitude of lust or of anger or of unforgiving uh, hearts or of envy or whatever it may be, of lying. Wash your hands. Repent. You sinners. Um, and that word, uh, harmotolos, I think it is, is, means notorious bad sinners. He's saying you have to repent to come back to God and purify your hearts. Now, how do you do that? 
Hands have to do with what we do. Hearts have to do with our attitudes and motives for why we do what we do. Purify those motives. Again, it's not something you can do in a second. It involves the reading of scripture, understanding God's will before you do it or uh, think it, right? Purify your hearts, you, and he says this word, and he said it earlier in this book, double-minded. What do you mean? Double-minded is the kind of person that's straddling the fence of this foot is in the kingdom of God and this foot is in the world. And I sure like all the world has to offer and all the um, money and the good looks and the entertainment that isn't really godly, but it's so fun. And then this foot on Sunday acts all Christian and double-minded. God says to the lukewarm church in Revelation, do you remember? I'll spit you out of my mouth because you're, you're lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. So we are to draw near to our Lord. And he's, he is loving. He is ready to pour grace out on us when we're humble, when we've repented, when we've changed our attitude, all part of the equation. But there's no middle ground. Taking your stand against Satan and resisting Satan goes hand in hand with drawing near to God. You don't just run from Satan. You run from Satan into the arms of your Lord. Um, okay, so these are, starting in verse 7, a bunch of commands uh, in the Greek. Uh, aortist, I have it somewhere here, 10 aortist imperatives. Fancy language. Submit yourselves to God, verse 7. Resist the devil, also verse 7. Come near to God. He'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. They're all commands, you double-minded. Okay, here comes a weird verse. And if you pluck this verse out of context, it's going to make no sense. Verse 9, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, if you take that verse out of context, there should be no laughter or smiling in church or Bible study. We're supposed to be gloomy. Is that what it means? No. In context, there's the repentance. Wash your hands, repentance. Purify your hearts, repentance. What he's talking about here is grieving, mourning, and wailing over your sin, over your distance from God, over your drifting on the beach until you can't even find, where are mom and dad? Where is the Lord? You moved, he didn't move. So grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Turn to the book of Matthew. This is a good time to check in with Matthew. We do this almost every week because this book parallels the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 is where we're going. And <laughs> um, I'm on the wrong page of notes. Hold on. Matthew chapter 5, yeah, verses 3 and 4. This will make these verses make more sense to you. Matthew, first gospel, chapter 5, verse 3. He says a weird thing. The Jews believed the, the blessed ones are the rich ones. Oh, he's rich. She's rich. Boy, they must be doing something right with God. Look what he says here. He's not talking about money. Verse 3 of Matthew 5 says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor. Blessed are the ones who know, spiritually speaking, God, I'm a sinner. In fact, I'm bankrupt before you. Why would that person be blessed? 
because that's such a humble, teachable, needy attitude that recognizes one's dependence on God, that God can go, you're right where I want you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Listen, next verse, four. Blessed are those who mourn. I'm so sorry for what I've done. It tears me up. Peter mourned after he denied Christ, you remember? Wept bitterly, it says, for they will be comforted. Then there's humility. Blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for material goods. Eh, wrong. Righteousness. That's what I want so bad. They will be filled. And it goes on from there. Let's go back to, to uh, James chapter 4. Um, I want you to get the meaning here because it's a little confusing. So why is verse 9 saying that? Grieve, mourn, and wail over your sin, over the fact that you've departed. Because in context, there's fights and quarrels, there's coveting, there's murder, there's wrong motives, there's no prayer, they're adulterous, um, they uh, need to submit to God, um, they need to resist the devil. So grieve, mourn, and wail for that condition. If you're in that condition, he says, change your laughter, that, that sort of flippant laughter about the world. Um, and instead, uh, change and change your joy to gloom. Bottom line, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Those that humble themselves before the Lord ended up, end up being exalted in heaven with great reward, in God's mind even now. Who's our example then? The one that humbled himself the most is Jesus Christ. What happened to him? Well, it didn't end well. He died on a cross. He got beat up and whipped. And yes, but what happened then? Rose from the dead and ascended bodily to heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father. He's greatly exalted. God gave him the name that's above every name. Great exaltation. He's our example there for the mourning that has to come over sin. You know what I forgot to mention is Hebrews. Go to Hebrews, if you will. From James, it's easy. It's one book to the left. So James, and then go to Hebrews chapter 7 and chapter 9. We won't be here long, and then we'll take our two-minute break because some of you are falling asleep. Hebrews chapter 7 is going to tell you and I um, how to draw near to God along with Hebrews 10. Hebrews 7, 19. The former regulation, verse 18, is set aside because it was weak and useless. That's the law and all that. Verse 19, for the law, that's trying to keep the Ten Commandments so God will owe you and you get blessing because you're being so good. The law made nothing made no one perfect and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to god he's talking about jesus christ now go to hebrews chapter 10 and verse 22 i meant to do this earlier but i'm old okay hebrews chapter 10 verse 22 let us draw near to god oh there's the same words tell us how let us draw near to god with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled, there's the repentance to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Picture a baptism, but really it's about washing away the sin, the sinful attitudes, the sinful acts. Um, 
go back to verse 19, still in Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, that's where God dwelled in the Old Testament temple, by the blood of Jesus, that's how the way was opened. Verse 20, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. You take Jesus's death, sacrificial death for you and I, out of the equation and just make him a great religious teacher like Muhammad, like Buddha, like Confucius, like Aristotle, like whoever you want to throw in there. Christianity isn't less, it's nothing. Without that cross, without that sacrifice, there's no way open. You say, why is that? I just want his teachings. The reason is without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And it either has to be me for my sin or a savior died in my place. Let's take our two minute break right now and stretch our aging legs and bodies. I'll be back in two minutes. I'm just gonna turn my screen off, don't go away. All right, we're back in uh, the book of James chapter four. Isaiah 29 says, this people draws near to me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but they've, their heart is far removed from me. God hates that re religious hypocrisy where you say all the right prayers, but really in your mind and in your heart and in your motives, you and I are far away. He hates that. But there's grace when we come back humbly in repentance. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. Loving God is the key. You say, how does that fit in? That's the two commandments that Jesus boiled down the whole Old Testament to. Do you remember? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God vertically. When you love someone, you want to be around them, right? I wouldn't say I'm so in love with so-and-so, but I hate being around them. Makes no sense, right? Then you're not in love with them. You want to be around the person you love. The more we love God, the more we are drawn to him and he to, he to us. Um, and then loving our neighbor as ourself is the horizontal end of that stuff. Um, we already talked about that. Let's keep moving on. Uh, by the way, one last thing about this verse, draw near to God. We had that earlier and he'll draw near to you, come near to God. He'll come near to you. That is an imperative. It's a command. And I believe it's not a one-time thing. We do come to him for salvation it's ongoing. You have to keep drawing near, right? I like to think of it as eating. Who doesn't love to eat? I love to eat, right? Would you say, um, when was the last time you ate, Joe? And if I said, oh, I think, you know, 2005, maybe. I think I had a snack in 2016. You eat constantly, don't you? Three meals a day, Americans eat and a bunch of snacks if you're like me. Um, Listen, that's our physical body. The spirit is no different. We need that nourishment. If you are a Christian who comes to church for 90 minutes on Sunday and that's it, you don't read the Bible, you really don't pray much, you're not studying the word, you're not in a Bible study, you're not in a small group, you are malnourished. You might be starving contrast how much God, Jesus, Bible, prayer on one hand of your life time-wise versus how much world, temptation, sin, 
all of the TV and the, all the movies and all the stuff you're getting into your eye gate and your ear gate, it can be uh, imbalanced. Okay, let's keep rolling. The key, verse 10, humbling yourselves before the Lord and he'll lift you up, ties it all together. Now we're going back to the tongue. Do you remember that whole discussion about speaking and what we say? Look at verse 11. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Don't speak evil of one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Okay, what's going on here? There are some commands here. There are some things he's telling us not to do, but there are also some things he's not saying to not do. You say, now I'm totally confused. Me too. Let's take it apart. First of all, Christians, it's brothers and sisters. He's reminding them, don't slander one another. That's to speak evil of somebody. This is the idea um, of a slanderer in, the, in this context is somebody that talks about a, a, another Christian who's a brother, but he's having this problem with the sin, or you think he is, or you're gossiping about it to a bunch of your friends, and he's not here to defend himself, okay? What you're doing there, whether you know it or not, is what I call the peg game, okay? And that is, I feel like my peg is kind of low and people don't really have a high opinion of me. Everybody seems to like Rex a lot though. So if I can put Rex down and move him down a few pegs and share with you what I heard about Rex, whether or not it's true, then I'm moving him down and maybe in your eyes, I'm, I'm moving up a few because I'm being the holier than thou one, the one judging him. Okay. Listen, we are not supposed to do that toward another brother, okay? Does that mean if I know that Rex is doing some horrible sin, I ought to just shut up about it? The answer is no, but there's a proper way to do it, and that's Matthew 18. We won't go there now, but basically, I'm supposed to go to him privately, not embarrass him in front of everybody like I just did, right, Rex? Um, not, not go to him, and, and not, I'm supposed to go to him privately and say, brother, I know um, I saw you and you were falling down, he's not, but you were falling down drunk the other night. How often is that happening? And he says, I don't know, five, six times a week, not that much. <laughs> and I say, brother, I know you're a Christian, you come to Bible study, I know you go to church, you got to deal with that problem, whatever it is. I'm not trying to embarrass him. The goal is to restore him so that he will draw near to God. He will resist the devil, everything we've just been saying, right? Okay. What this, these verses are saying is that when we judge one another in, that, in the way that is slandering them behind their backs, cutting them down in public instead of properly going to him privately. By the way, if I go to him privately and he says, get lost, I enjoy drinking, I can do it and be a Christian. If I'm in the same church as him, the proper thing to do in, in Matthew 18 is that you bring a few elders with you and knock on his door and go, 
these are the elders of the church where you go, and so am I, and we're here to talk to you because this is sin. Look, look at, be not drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's all through the Bible. You're not supposed to have strong drink, and if he still, in a church setting, says, get lost, all three of you, and do you want to drink before you leave, right? He says, get lost, then we, the elders of that church, have an obligation to go before the church and go, we did A, went to him, we did B with elders, he still won't repent, so we're telling you all he's got a problem. That's biblical. This isn't. This is slander behind, you know what I heard about Rex? And we haven't gone to him or anything. It may or may not be true. Don't slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. You say, what speaks against the law? Listen, God has given us a law, right? There's the don't do's and there's the you should do these things, right? So whether he's doing something he shouldn't or not doing something, which is going to come up in a second, that he should do, either way, the law is the final court of arbitration. And the guy that gave the law isn't me. It's not your pastor. It's God, right? For me to take judgment matters into my own hands is to say, I'm judging the law and saying, I'm better than it is. I can make the decision apart from God's law, apart from God. In a way, I'm saying to the judge in the courtroom, which is God sitting at, at the bench, get up off your seat. I'm going to sit there now, right? Which is the worst thing you can possibly do. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping the law. You're breaking the law that you think you're keeping by being Mr. Judge. You ever meet those kind of people that are so critical about everything, right? Ken and I were talking about this before, that there's people in churches that they just, oh, I didn't like that, and this should be different, and that, right? We need to kind of give it a rest and be supportive and be encouraging of one another, don't we? Now, Here's another thing where you can't judge and neither can I. He's saved, she isn't. Can't do it. You, we don't know, right? You can judge the fruit in a person's life and they're certainly acting like they're saved. She's certainly acting like she's not saved by what she's doing, but she could be a wayward child that God is pulling back in, right? Like the prodigal son, we don't know. That's not our prerogative. God is the one that judges. And he reserves judgment until Christ returns. When he returns, the bell rings, the buzzer rings, the game's over. It's time to judge. Who gets to judge? God. Don't ask to sit on the throne with him. You'll get booted off, right? When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. And by, by implication, you're judging God, saying, I can do a better job than you. Verse 12, is only one lawgiver and judge, parenthetically, you know what I would write in here? And it ain't you, Joe. I don't mean you, Joe. I mean me, Joe. Yeah. It's not you. There's one lawgiver. Who is it, class? It's God, right? The one who is able to save, which he did for us, and destroy, which means hell for those that don't believe. There's one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? 
a hard thing, isn't it? We can tend to be critical, hypercritical sometimes. We need to find the good and encourage that. When there's blatant sin, like the example I gave, I shouldn't have used your Rex, I apologize. He'll be waiting for me in the parking lot probably, right? When there's blatant sin, we need to not look the other way. There's churches that just go, I'm going to leave that alone. I know those two are sleeping together. I know that guy's a drug addict, but hey, he's here. And there needs to be an encouragement to repent because the broader picture is of a church where the people that see that say, wow, this church is serious about obedience. I thought I was going to slide in here and just live my life the way I want and get my hour and a half in and feel like you owe me now, God, I'm here. And they're serious about it. They don't tolerate it. Better that than to let them go there with sinful way. And then, oh, you heard, yeah, he got in a car wreck and he died. Oh, no. We should have said something. And now he's before the judge, right? Let's keep rolling now that everyone's depressed. Verse 13. Now let's talk about the overconfident, worldly, money, money, money type. Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why you do not, or really should be read, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Go back to verse 13. This is a person, and it sounds when you read this on a cursory level, it sounds like God doesn't want you to plan. Wrong. It's totally okay to plan. This person is planning without God right? There's no nothing this person says that doesn't have to do with what I want to do for my business to make money. Today or, today or tomorrow, we're going to do, do this or that, spend a year there, carry on business, make money, and give a portion to the Lord. No. And worship the Lord. No. And ask the Lord before we go, is this your will that I go do this business? In the time this is being written, there were Jewish merchants who were, you could stay home and sell your goods in a small town and make a meager living or travel, leave the wife and children and go travel around to neighboring cities and sell the sandals you make or the tents or whatever it may be. Um, so this is a person that is judging, uh, sorry, that is planning apart from God. Notice the, the terminology, carry on business, make money, spend a year there. Uh, I'll go to this city or that city. You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. Um, Charles Spurgeon commenting on this verse um, said, there's two things we know for sure. God knows everything. And we, in terms of the future, God knows everything. We know virtually nothing, right? How many times have you been shocked to hear about something that happened to someone else or shocked that something happened to you, right? Whether it was a health thing or an accident or somebody near to you passed away or whatever it may be, we really don't have the control, but we like to act like 
we do, right? Um, James wants us to know via the Holy Spirit that we need to plan with God in mind. We need to realize that we're a mist. Do you see that? Uh, what is your life? Verse 14, you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. If, if I had a spray bottle here and I could go, you would see it for a second. And then if you tried to keep watching it, you'd go, it went, right? Just kind of disappears. Our lives may seem long if we get 70, 80, 90, even 100 years. I have an aunt I called the other day. She lives in Levittown, New York. She's 103 years old. Just an amazing thing. My dad lived to be 96. It's his sister. Um, but even that, in the scheme of eternity, is, right? It's over before you know it. My dad used to tell my brother and I, as you get older, Time seems to pass faster and faster and faster. And in our teens and 20s, we kind of looked at each other like, yeah, right. There's no way that's true. Dad, time is the same whether you're five years old or 50 or 100. Wrong. Those of you that are older, does it seem like it's passing faster now? Uh, our lives are just a mist. We are a very temporary thing here but eternity is eternity you won't be a mist in heaven you will live forever uh with god so um i want you to notice that he's assuming tomorrow i'll be alive i'll be in good health there won't be any emergencies or sickness or sudden death we will go, he says. Well, the weather will be good. Transportation will be available. Gas won't be 5 or $6 a gap. Oh, never mind. Um, there won't be any natural disasters. And we'll spend a year there. During that time, of course, I'll be healthy. There'll be lodging available. There'll be business to do. Um, I'll trade. It'll all work out. And I'll get gain. I won't lose money because I totaled the car. And it costs more than the money I'm making. There's a lot of assumptions, and it's all about me, 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 that this guy is saying. But this is not just for business people. This is not just for the wealthy. This is for everybody in this room and everybody on Zoom, which rhymes with room. All of us can do this, can't we? Have you ever done this? I got a plan together. Follow me, God. Bless this, because I'm going over here. And instead of asking, is this your will? Is there something else you'd rather I do, Father? Will you close the doors, God, if you don't want me to do this? Or open them wide if you do? That's planning with God in mind. Would God want me to do this? Is there anything sinful about this? It does seem kind of materialistic. Hmm, maybe I shouldn't do this. So, we live in a fallen world where there are accidents and sickness and crimes committed that you, nobody expects to get mugged or have a drive-by shooting occur, but they do occur, don't they? It's arrogant to be that presumptuous to make plans without God. Um, instead, you ought to say, verse 15, and this verse has been very much misunderstood, if it's the Lord will, Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Now, have you ever met Christians that think this is a mantra, that you have to say it every time? 
What are you guys doing tomorrow? Um, we're going to have lunch uh, over at Ducey's, if it's the Lord's will. And uh, then I'm going to go shopping down in Fresno at Target, if it's the Lord's will. And then I'm going to get gas, uh, as expensive as it is, if it's the Lord's will. It's not something that you have to say every time. There's two scriptures in the book of Acts where Paul says it, that I'm, I intend to go to this place if it's the Lord's will. But there's three more that he plans and doesn't say if it's the Lord's will. It's not about saying it. It's about feeling it and doing it, right? Praying to God, is this your will? About everything. Um, so the, the background of all this is in verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. This is the guy that has Jesus along for the ride, but Jesus ain't driving the car. The guy is saying, follow me, Jesus, get in. We're going over here now, right? Sometimes Paul wanted to go to a certain area and he says that the, the God prevented it or the, the spirit prevented it, or even the devil stopped me from going there. There's always surprises in life. Those of us that get totally thrown off by when everything doesn't go according to plan, need to realize when does anything go perfectly according to plan? It pretty much never does, right? We need to be flexible. God uses our circumstances to teach us stuff, but it's important to plan with God in mind, not be overconfident, um, not plan selfishly. Um, now, there's going to be a verse here that's going to seem like it comes out of left field. Those of you that played baseball, um, it means comes out of nowhere, like a non sequitur. It doesn't really relate. It relates. Um, when we have elder meetings, one of the elders, when he prays, I love this uh, prayer. I'm starting to use it. He, when we pray, the elders bow our heads and we each pray. When he prays, one of the elders always says to God, please, Father, rule us and over rule us because we're all thinking here's what we're going to do if it's not your will please overrule us that's humble right it's beautiful um let's see uh the guy if he does this business trip and makes great money don't you know he's gonna pat himself on the back right oh and praise the lord too but it's all his doing he thinks right he doesn't understand the complexity of life, the uncertainty, how short life is, and the frailty of man. Here today, gone tomorrow. It can happen to any one of us, right? Thank God for every day. Okay, now here comes the non-sequitur. It comes out of left field. James made a mistake. No, no, he didn't. Verse 17. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is for them sin. What? What's implied here is this dude with the business plan and the making the money and the travel for a year to this city and that who made his plans without God knows something he's supposed to do. And he's doing this. La, la, la. I don't want to hear that. He knows that Ricky and Randy are in need and should be helping them. Nope, I'm gonna, I got my business plan out and 
and God's putting them in his field of vision and he's doing this. No, I just want to see where I'm going here. Let me get the map out again. I'm going to go to Fresno and then over to Bakersfield and make a living and make money. This is what's called, verse 17, a sin of, listen, omission. You ever heard that? There are sins of commission. I lied or I stole something or I worshiped another God, or I committed adultery, or I lusted in my mind, or I hated someone or didn't forgive them, or got drunk or used drugs or whatever, maybe. Oh, those are committed. You committed that sin. You did something. A sin of omission is, I knew I should have helped them, but I just didn't want to get involved. And I feel like if I gave them the money they need, it would be less for me. Somebody else will help them. A lot of people like them. I kind of like them, but some of you really like them. So somebody should help those people. Maybe God's putting them in your field of vision because he wants you to do it. Chances are that's the case, right? You know of a need and you go, somebody else will cover that. I give a church. Come on. Maybe it's a sin of omission. That's why it's there. Um, it's implying that this business dude knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it. For them, it's a sin. I want you to notice that a sin of omission is just that. He didn't do, let's just say I didn't go on my business trip. I do know that they have a need. I'm just staying home, reading my Bible, going to church. I'm not sinning. Oh, no, you are because it's a sin of omission something God has put in your heart and you're not listening. You're focusing on other things. There are things God has commanded that we do positively, D-O. Like what? Like give to a church. Well, that's for people that can afford to do that. I like to tell people you can't afford to not give to God. You can't afford it. Because when you don't give to God, then you're out of his will. That's a sin of omission. It's a sin. What else are we supposed to do? Forgive. Love one another, right? Give to other people. Uh, earlier in this book, do you remember when he talked about somebody that sees someone who is um, hungry and without proper clothing? And the person says in Christian jargon, God bless you. Go be filled and be blessed. Somebody else will help you out. When you see the need, maybe that's God going, nudging you going, you see? Why do you think I gave you a good month last month? Help them out. But truth is, this isn't just for rich people. We're about to get into rich people in the next chapter if the teacher would just shut up and move on. But my point is by world standards, Every single one of us is wealthy. Did you know that? Um, when we studied the book of John, I gave the statistic, I believe, this is from memory, I could be wrong. I believe that worldwide, the average annual, annual earnings is 2,400. A year, $2,400 or the equivalent. So we're wealthy. I'll bet you nobody within the sound of my voice on Zoom or you guys here, if you can afford Zoom, you can afford food, right? I'll bet you nobody here is worried about where am I going to get the food for tomorrow? A lot of the world, a third of the world goes hungry 
every other day or so. And there was no food today. By world standards, we're wealthy. I can't afford to help them. Chances are, if you help them, it wouldn't change your lifestyle any. Now we can't buy food. We helped Ricky and Randy. Come on. Anyway, now that I've made you all feel even more guilty, shall we move on? Um, uh, in the parallel passage, Matthew 23, 23, Jesus is chiding in no uncertain terms the Sadducees who were very, very wealthy uh, and the Pharisees. And he says that their crime is that they were neglecting justice, mercy, and faithfulness. They were stealing widows' houses. Remember all that whole portion of scripture? Okay, chapter five. James is going to deal with one more practical area of life, and that's, he's going to just spell it out, money, riches. And he warns of the danger. This is the third time, uh, chapter one. In fact, turn there real fast. Go to James um, chapter one. Let me go there as well. Go to James one, nine through 11, just for review real fast. James 1, 9. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich take pride in his low, should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wildflower. Um, okay, now go to chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, and we'll just read portions. My brothers, as believers in our Lord glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, a rich dude, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention, favoritism to the rich guy, oh, you sit up front here in this really nice chair, and you kick the other guy out to the back of the room who's poor with no shoes, um, you're sinning. You become judges with evil thoughts, verse 4. Um, God has chosen, verse 5, those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith for the most part. There are many believers, Old Testament, who were wealthy. Abraham was wealthy. Um, Job was extremely wealthy. There are others. New Testament, Joseph of Arimathea was wealthy. Barnabas was wealthy. Nicodemus was wealthy. Um, is being wealthy a sin? No. Does the Bible say money is the root of all evil? No, doesn't say that. What? No, it doesn't. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You can do all kinds of good with money. But why pick on rich people? I'll tell you why. Because if these rich people are Christians, wealth, material wealth creates what might be the most um, uh, the thing that most makes it more difficult, a, a blockage, if you will, and, and uh, a detriment almost to faith. The reason is rich people feel like I have it all. Who needs God? Right? Tim Keller used to say, whatever gives you peace, if it's your wealth, if it's your fame, if it's your good looks, if it's your gold medal, if it's your playing in the NFL, if you can lose it, there's no peace in it. None. Money, you can squander it. It could be stolen. You could get hacked and they take all your money. You can lose it, right? You could get sued and have to pay somebody and then you lose everything. So there's no peace in money. 
when you go down the list, good looks, look around the room, it's fading. <laughs> Some of you faster than others, me among them. It's all going to, if you were famous six years ago and now nobody knows your name, that's a hard thing too. People put so much stock in fame and power and money and all those things are all lies. And money is the biggest lie of all. Let's read verse five, verse one of chapter five. Now, listen, you rich people. I just said you're all rich, by the way. Now, listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. You say, what? No, I, I'm, I'm a multi-billionaire. I own Amazon. Why would I weep? And what misery is coming on me? He's going to say, you can lose it. Watch. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded or rusted. They, their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Ouch, kind of Danteism. Um, you've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Almighty. You've lived in luxury and, and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Okay, there's a lot there and we probably won't get to all of it, but let's in, at least introduce the subject. Remember, don't read this and think, yeah, Bill Gates, this is for you. Listen, all of you are wealthy by world standards, all of us. You rich people, weep and wail because of the misery, because you can lose it, because you can't take it with you, not even one dollar, right? Every rich person, this thought hit me this week and just almost knocked me over. Every rich person, every single one that has ever lived ended up losing his entire fortune. You say, no, some people die really rich. They can't take it with them. They lost it. Their kids have it now and squandered it. They go into eternity, into judgment, naked, just like they came into the world. Every rich person loses everything. That includes me. That includes you. Boy, just depression here tonight. Okay. Your wealth has rotted, and it can. Moths have eaten your clothes. Clothing was a, a way of paying people and a way of showing great wealth. But clothes can be, they can fall apart, right? They can be moth-eaten. Um, your gold and silver are corroded, rusted. Okay. Truth, gold and silver don't rust. They don't get them wet. They don't rust. Will they corrode over time? Yes. Does that affect the value? Yes. He's saying the things that we have put value on, everybody kind of knows, yeah, that, that goldish metal that's kind of heavy. We call that valuable. Silver, not as valuable, but that's also something we call valuable, right? I mean, you could go to another planet where granite would be valuable. We would be all billionaires, right? Up here in the mountains. Gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Why? Because they put so much stock in that wealth. And when it's gone and they're in eternity, they've died now. They can't get to heaven and go, do you know who I am? 
Because God will say, as he said earlier, who are you to judge your brother, right? I'm a very powerful, rich man. God says, not up here, you're not, right? The weird thing is the poor ones who believed in God walk on streets of gold in heaven. The streets of gold in heaven thing, I think some people think that's, oh, wow, I'm just going to go dig up part of a road and have lots of money and gold. The point of that isn't that. The point is what you guys think is valuable on earth, gold. Yeah, we pave roads with that stuff here. It's nothing here to us, gold. Well, what's valuable in heaven? Faith, relationship with God, right? The stuff that here, the world goes, big deal. In heaven, it's everything. Anyway, let's take a collection now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, you've hoarded wealth in the last days. Are we in the last days? Biblically, we've been in the last days since John wrote 1 John, where he says the same thing. Paul says the same thing at the end of the book of Acts. Last days means after Jesus came, died, for our sins, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven. The last days, the clock started. Is it closer now than ever before? Absolutely. Some, I'm not one of them, it, some are sure this is it. We're in the tribulation or it's going to happen any minute. Seems like it. But I knew some older believers in the 70s who told me that during World War II, they were sure Hitler was the Antichrist, Mussolini was the false prophet. How can an Italian be bad? But anyway, Mussolini was the false prophet. Hitler was the Antichrist. The mark of the beast was a swastika. He's killing Jews. What more do you need to know? We're in the, it's going to, seven years of tribulation. Here it is. Eh, wrong. Could this be it? Maybe. Certainly is speeding toward that, right? Where a man could control as the leader of the whole world, all commerce with a mark on your hand or forehead, Revelation 13, read it tonight after you go home. That's what the Antichrist is going to do. You can't buy or sell or earn money or own anything unless you got the mark of the beast, 666, whatever that means. Could you do that 30 years ago? No. 100 years ago? No. 1,000 years ago? No. Now? Wow. With a computer type strip thing, little chip thing. I don't understand all that stuff, but it's a lot more possible than it's ever been. In the meantime, whether we're in the last days or not, the point of all this is don't love the world and the stuff the world loves. We have to see it as we're going to pave roads with that stuff in heaven. The valuable things are drawing near to God and having that relationship with him and then living a life that's pleasing to him. Okay, let's close with prayer and we'll get out of here and we'll pick it up next time. We'll talk more about rich people and, uh, and make your shoes pinch a little. Let's pray. Thank you for this time, Father. We love you. We love your word. We seek to please you. Help us not to get ahead of you and say, follow me. Here's where I'm going. Help us to plan uh, uh, with you in mind, God, and with your biblical principles in mind and with ministry in mind and with honoring you in mind in all we do. Help us to see ourselves with that humble attitude, God, and to never give the devil an opportunity. Help us not to take the call when he tries to get a hold of us. Help us to quote scripture. Help us to pray. Help us to resist the devil immediately. And uh, we pray that we'd be mindful about judging others and not 
to do it, not be that critical girl or guy that's always, I don't like this, I don't like that. Help us to live without hypocrisy and judge with a righteous judgment that comes from your word and done properly, but not with slander. Help us to uh, not be so confident in the, in the flesh, God. And keep us from this greedy attitude, God, and uh, help us to see our material goods as what they are, something extremely temporary, just like our lives. But in the meantime, we pray you'd use us for your glory. Help us to hold in our hands what you've given us, our time, our talents, our abilities, and our money with an open hand so that you can take out or put in whatever you wish. Rule and overrule us, God. We love you and can't wait to see you. We pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for being here. Those of you that are here, make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. Those of you on Zoom can't do that, but I love you. And we'll see you next Tuesday, God willing. See you then.